The first reading may be found on page 615 in the Old Testament section of the Pew Bibles. Proverbs chapter 4, reading verses 25 to 27. Admonition to keep to the right path. Let your eyes look directly forwards and your gaze be straight before you. Keep straight the path of your feet and all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the left or to the right. Turn your foot away from evil. The second reading may be found on page 234 in the New Testament section of the Pew Bibles. Hebrews chapter three, reading verses one to 19. Moses a servant, Christ a son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, holy partners in a heavenly calling, consider that Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Yet Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's houses as a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken later. Christ, however, was faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if we hold firm the confidence and the pride that belong to hope. Warning against unbelief. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as of the day of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors put me to the test, though they had seen my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation, and I said, they always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. As in my anger I swore, they will not enter my rest. Take care, brothers and sisters, that none of you may have an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partners of Christ, if only we hold out our first confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now who were they who heard and yet were rebellious? Was it not all those who left Egypt under the leadership of Moses? But with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, 
if not to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Thanks be to God for his word. Earlier this week, Steve and I went to the cinema to watch Vice, which is a sort of biographical comedy drama about the political career of Dick Cheney. It colourfully focuses on some of Cheney's more memorable acts as Vice President of the United States during the presidency of George W. Bush and imaginatively fills in the blanks for the times when we only have hearsay to go on including what I thought was a really amusing scene set in Shakespearean language and style. The critics ripped that apart and said it was pointless. I really enjoyed it. I would hazard a guess that most people in the audience of the cinema were similar to me in that they may have vaguely known the name Dick Cheney, but probably knew little of the detail behind his rise to power and his unique approach to the role of VP. Throughout the film, we became witnesses to the acts that the Cheney family instigated to ensure that when they finally got hold of some power, that no one took it from them. In one memorable scene, Dick's wife, Lynn, addresses her younger daughter saying, and I'm not going to do their uh, accent, you'll be glad to hear, you need to remember, Lizzie, that if you have power, people will always try to take it from you, always. As a family, the story goes, they had become obsessed with power, and they retained that power by becoming masters of truth, or at least their version of it. For whilst Vice President Cheney may have effectively hidden in the shadow of the more vocal President George W. Bush, he was far from the lame duck that many expect the role of Vice President to be. Throughout the retelling of his life, Vice depicts a master at work, finding the truth and then bending, manipulating, or just plain rewriting it to fit his overall goal, the retention of power. Particularly insightful were the segments that explored the use of focus groups to understand the issues that people had had particular issues with, policies, actions that the government was taking, and then how to spin them to make them more palatable or easier to digest. Global warming, the film explains, becomes climate change because it sounds less scary. The war on terror, which had remained at the time attacks against individuals and smaller terror cells, became targeted strikes against countries. Afghanistan, followed by Iraq, and of course that particular narrative now continues in Syria. For the focus groups discussing the war in particular, it was important to have a country to fight against. People understood one country versus another. They didn't understand a country going up against lone operators and extremists. And so these focus groups then, and still do in PR firms across the world, became powerhouses for retelling the truth, for spinning narratives so that they're easier to understand and less terrifying to confront. They also, critically, ensured that those in power remained in power. It would be naive, in my opinion, to remove oil from the equation when reviewing the invasion of Iraq. Oil is money, and money, after all, is power. I wonder, and bear with me for a second, 
Do you think there were focus groups in the narratives, in the retelling of the narratives of Christ's ministry? Perhaps not literal meetings with coffee and paper cups and flip charts with big red pens, but the careful creation and editing of a story that so beautifully spoke truth to power. And in the thousands of billions of retellings since, have we all been participating in collaborative focus groups that have edited, tweaked, maybe even impoverished the truth of Christ? Well, let's give us all the benefit of the doubt for a second and suggest that we haven't been a part of such a process uh, since the physical recording of Christ's ministry. Why don't we try it now? I'm gonna ask those of you who are comfortable with this kind of activity to pair up or get into groups of two or three, and if you're not comfortable, that's absolutely fine, to stay by yourself and just to reflect on the questions that are on the screen. What part of Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection do you find to be unsavory or troubling or problematic? Would it be easier to understand Jesus' ministry with better accounts of his life prior to his three years of teaching and the itinerant healings and, and preachings began? What do you believe people find the biggest stumbling block to be when reading the gospel narratives for the first time? And how might we overcome those stumbling blocks? So we're not going to have a chance to get into a full discussion around this this morning, but just either by yourself, have a think on those questions, or pair up, get into small groups to have a few minutes, maybe just pick one of those questions that particularly speaks out to you, just to have a think uh, as if you were in a focus group trying to get to grips with the story of Jesus Christ and how on earth we're going to convince people that this makes sense. A few minutes, go for it. Okay, let's come back together. Thank you for humoring me. I know that's not everyone's cup of tea on a Sunday morning, so thank you for participating and uh, sitting with these questions. Whilst we may not be in a position to rewrite church history, many over the years have attempted to reinterpret the truth and contextualize it, offer new meanings to the incarnation, or simply see a truth that many others don't see. Because that's the trouble with truth, it's seemingly subjective. A common mantra today, and if you're on social media, you'll often see things on Instagram, which is a picture curating part of social media that allows you to put lots of pretty filters on it to make you look better than you actually do in real life. And you'll see lots of these kind of memes and mantras that kind of get put up onto um, Instagram. And one of the most commonplace ones is find your truth, suggesting that each of our own individual truths may not hold true to others that found finding our truth may not be truthful for someone else. This search for personal truth is also reflected in the millennial quest for authenticity. Studies show that those in the 18 to 35-ish age bracket are more likely to choose their workplace based on alignment of values that allow them to live authentically, as well as the leadership who embody those attitudes over an increased salary. So millennials, those in the brackets of 18 to 35, would rather work somewhere that they feel comfortable in, that they feel matches their values, than somewhere that would pay them more. But in the post-truth world where 24-hour news cycles have sensationalized us to numbness 
and where the shifting perspectives of the powerful layer our decision-making with targeted advertisements, fabricated news stories, and us-versus-them politics. Identifying what is truthful may seem like a, a little like trying to nail jelly to the wall. Let's consider the current political turmoil in Venezuela. It seems that every NATO-aligned country has an opinion on what is really happening on the ground. Yet the truth remains elusive. The majority of international opinion seems to hold fast to the consistent and tiresome liberational regime change mentality, yet reports from citizens and broader liberal views intimate that this is something for the people of Venezuela to resolve and that heavy-fisted and internationally supported regime change is neither necessary nor ultimately desirable. In a recent article for the Irish Times, Betty Purcell writes, while I was in Caracas, I took the cable car up to a mountainous walking area above the city and talked with families out enjoying Venezuela's famous hot chocolate. Political arguments were fiercely contested. One couple told me that Maduro's policies were causing children to starve in the barrios. Others proudly showed their bags with pictures of Hugo Chavez and said their children looked forward to lives of dignity and progress. They would not tolerate the interventions that the US had made in Central America in the 1980s. As I watched the indoor skating and, and street theater, it struck me that things are more complicated in Venezuela than we in the West have been led to believe. And similarly, Glenn Ford for the Black Agenda Report writes, polls show that Venezuelans, despite the hardships they have endured over the past few years of economic crisis, overwhelmingly oppose both US military and economic aggression. As reported by Ben Norton of Grey Zone, the local nonpartisan polling from Hinterlaces found that 86% of Venezuelans would disagree with international military intervention and 81% oppose the US sanctions against their country. So where do we find truth? Who do we look to for authority in times like these? The author of our first reading today from the book of Proverbs suggests that it is a matter of will, that by fixing our gaze ahead, planning what path to walk, and by remaining unwavering in our decision-making, we will surely succeed and not succumb to evil. Perhaps many of us know the quote from an American classic, Best Laid Plans of Mice and Men. I don't know about you, but any attempt that I've ever made to fix my path and plan have usually resulted in the complete opposite happening. So perhaps the author of Proverbs is referring not to the path planning of spreadsheets, agendas, and five-year plans, but perhaps of the authentic millennial who chooses values above paychecks, authenticity above ease. But let's not pretend that this is actually an easy task. Choosing to live authentically and championing what you value is usually, it's usually thankless, and it is often painful, particularly as Christians whose approach to scripture and the lens through which we apply it to our lives is often demeaned, academically doubted, or disregarded without conversation. 
those of us who belong to communities like Bloomsbury might find ourselves caught between a rock and a hard place. The challenge to authentically apply our commitment to the truth of the kingdom of God, our truth, and the challenge to actually do it in a world of shifting perspectives and shape-shifting narratives. As my very wise friend, colleague, and nominee for the Office of Baptist President 2020 to 2021, sorry, couldn't help myself, has become well known for saying, intent is not impact. And that's a quote from Dawn, by the way, in case you didn't guess. How should we proceed in this shifting landscape with good intentions, but perhaps not always fulfilled actions? Where we commit ourselves to truth acceptance, hope, inclusion, advocacy, yet often we miss the mark because we are battled by the, battered by the obstacles on the path. Or we have chosen a well-worn, familiar and easy path instead of the bumpy and hard to navigate one of authenticity. Where we rely on the ease of radicalized mainstream news without cross-checking and seeking other narratives to corroborate. The answer lies in the book of Hebrews, where we are not presented with a choice, but what appears to be an ultimatum. We are not to harden our hearts as the Israelites did when they endured the wilderness, but we are to remain steadfast to our original conviction in Christ, seeking encouragement from one another. And interestingly, this is what will prevent us from turning away from the path of the God of love, encouragement. In a world full of doubt and fear, encourage one another. In a world where the truth is subjective and news is false, encourage one another. In a world of inequality that we are so often complicit, encourage one another. In a world where we might look left or right, or perhaps even behind, and not remain focused ahead, encourage one another. Doesn't it seem odd that the author of the Hebrews is suggesting that the Israelites would not have hardened their hearts if they had just sought out to encourage one another? It seems like a fairly simple solution to me, and I wonder, therefore, why we don't do it more often. We're quick to criticize when someone doesn't do something right or when a mistake is made. We're quick to judge when someone doesn't conform to our patterns of behavior or question that which looks different to us. But isn't the world hard enough? Isn't it tough enough to maintain a semblance of faith amongst all this brokenness? Back to the film that I mentioned at the start of my sermon. Towards the end, Dick Cheney and his daughter have a choice. The landscape has shifted. Their power could be slipping. And they have a choice. Family over power. Love over legacy. Truth over control. They chose power, legacy, and control over family, love, and truth. Their actions could have consequences for not only millions of marginalized people, but also their marginalized family member. 
Seeking hidden truth in a world of shifting perspectives is time-consuming and exhausting work. It requires us to no longer be spoon-fed, but to seek answers ourselves. And if we are to authentically do that as a gathered community of Christ, we need to have each other's backs in the process. We need to know that we have the support of one another, the acts of encouragement we are prescribed in Scripture, particularly when we find ourselves grumbling in the desert. It is then that we know that our hearts will not be hardened and that we will find rest in the love of God. Thank you, God, for food and love. Thank you, Lord, for this meal. But we cannot live by bread alone. We have shared it together because we need each other gathered round this table. Lord God, as we bring our prayers, we thank you that we can share in your kingdom of justice and peace. We come in our poverty, not in our wealth, in our blindness, not with great faith, in our weakness, not in our strength. You welcome all people So now we bring to you those from the wide and narrow streets of our world who need the love of the God to whom we pray. In the silence, reflect on those people. God of fulfillment, we are before you in prayer, spiritually fulfilled after the act of sharing in bread and wine, but in many ways, we seek yet more fulfillment. Our stomachs may grumble if we have not eaten well or at all today, for two days, for a week. Our health may be fragile, our strength not what it was. Our minds may be fraught, conflicted, confused, chaotic. Our souls may be faint, weakened by the shifting perspectives of this world. God of fulfillment, we seek restoration today. And now pause to consider God at work in your life. Where have you seen God at work this week? And where has God appeared to be absent? (laughs) God of truth, you came as Christ incarnate to a world of deception and dishonesty, your creation marred by the meddling hands of humanity who sought and seek to shift perspectives to control narratives, to focus group the truth. Yet you came, you came to speak truth to power and you did so as the suffering servant, betrayed by those he loved and condemned to death on a cross. In the act of communion today, we have remembered that great sacrifice and we are reminded still of the acts of community invites us to continue. 
our responsibility to one another as a gathered community of Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church, to our friends, neighbours and colleagues, to the wider city of London and broader still to the UK, Europe and the world. We are not isolated beings, but created in love, bound in community, called to serve. God of truth, we seek opportunities to serve you today, to be lights in the darkness, to show love, not fear, to be bearers of truth and not power. In the stillness, pause to consider the truth that you share, the truth that you have been told, the truth of a war world at war with itself. Where do you pray to see the truth of the divine at work this week? God of hope, it is to you we come in the times of our deepest depression, our conflicting choices, in the midst of troubling truths. You are the God who guided the Israelites through the wilderness, who was baptized in the Jordan, who is sent to be with us today and always. We seek encouragement so that we might encourage one another that we might not harden our hearts to our families and friends, nor to you, and that we remain hopeful for a kingdom restored, a future promise of peace. Encouraging God, we seek not the passing whims of earthly comfort, but the sure foundation of hope in you, Alpha and Omega, source of fulfillment, truth and hope, in a world that is at risk through global warming, wars, common greed, and political instability. We choose hope over fear. In this act of silence, pause to consider the hope that you have been reminded of by the bread and the wine today, and consider where you might be heralds of hope this week. Holy God, three in one, creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Hear our prayers. Amen. <laughs>